0: we speak about disruption and we talk about customer experience today we're speaking with somebody who is genuinely a pioneer in changing video production grant petty is the founder and the ceo of black magic design and if you do video production ask your video crew if you're a marketer ask your video folks everybody knows that name black magic design and it's a personal interest of mine because obviously we make videos here in CXO Talk, so I'm really excited. Grant, tell us about Blackmagic Design.
1: Well, we're um, post-production people. Um, we were working in television, and I think what shocked us is really how expensive the equipment was, and really in some ways how unpolished it was, you know, as far as the kind of the quality of, of how things were built. And as computers got more powerful, and I started to realize that the desktop publishing tools could really pretty much do a lot better job than what some of the dedicated systems we were buying were. I started to think that this, it seemed wrong, like it seemed like we were paying a lot of money for, for basically just specialist gear when there was actually other ways of potentially doing it. So we originally started out doing a capture card for computers that we could plug in. and had SDI connections, which are the really high quality video connections. And then we kind of just, you know, I guess we got a culture of just sort of fixing problems and the most urgent problem was trying to get the editing systems lower cost. and. Um, yeah, you know, we paid over a million dollars for a visual effects system back in the in the '90s. So I felt like you know computers were getting more powerful, and um, we should take advantage of that. But then you you know one thing rolls into another. Like once you get some customers, then they start saying, oh look, I've got a monitoring problem, or I've got a problem here, or a problem there.
0: So when you started the company, the point was to reduce the, the to produce quality equipment that reduces the 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 cost at that time.
1: Cost wasn't our main driver. We Obviously we knew anything we did would be lower cost if we you know, we're using the computer. I mean you you'd buy this dedicated box and it had all kinds of chips and things and it you think well, you know that you're kind of buying a lot of the same power that the computer already has now, there's a computer sitting right there. I mean, that's got a lot of processing power. We should take advantage of that. And so you know in many ways, um, I mean, that was kind of like a, a, you know anything we did would have been lower cost, but really what was high quality is what we we're focused on. and you know, I think that, in the early days, we got a lot of criticism. I mean, actually, people in the industry hated what we were doing. You know, the um, the other manufacturers. I didn't know anything about the manufacturer side of the industry, and there was a lot of really weird, creepy, made-up stories about us and things like that. I didn't realize how really poisonous the manufacturing side was. A bit of a bit of a boys' club, really. And when I say boys' club, it really almost was a boys' club. And so I think that's changed a lot now. I, I just felt like it was uh, it was almost an exclusive club. I wanted it to be um, the creativity that really drove people. I think that. The people I liked in the industry were really creative, and I and I wanted to find ways of helping them. So, kind of empowering creativity was a thing that really became a theme for what we're doing. It wasn't really low cost, although we pretty much knew anything we did would be affordable. But we've got as we've got better at what we do, that's actually become one of the things we can do. Often we can bring a lower price to things. So, I think, but it wasn't one of the original goals. Quality was more the original goal. You know, the video quality was was sort of the original goal.
0: So, in, in a way, you were you were democratizing. This very expensive equipment, and now it's it's software as well. Is, is, would that be an accurate way to put it?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's very much the case, um, and which is why I think that people are a bit confused when we sort of expanded into other product lines, or we acquired DaVinci. DaVinci originally was a color correction system used by Hollywood. It's still used, you know, by more than eighty percent of the feature films. But it was, you know, three hundred fifty thousand dollars for the minimum system, up to eight hundred fifty thousand dollars at the time, and. You know, we now actually—you can download it for free for Mac, Windows, and Linux—and and, and just—and it's got editing and audio post-production and visual effects and everything in it now. So it's a very different product. But it sort of that surprised people when we originally did that. But it really fed in with the, you know the theme that we had was a much broader theme than what most people kind of perceive that we we're doing. It's just that I think you tend to focus on an area when you first start out. As you get good, at, sort of better at what you do. I mean, really, you start a company with just absolute failure, right? I mean, you're bad at everything. I think if you're coming from an industry and you're trying to fix that industry, you've got to sort of almost move out of the industry into technology if you're using technology to do that. And you've got to kind of reinvent yourself, but then you kind of come back in and fix the industry with that. So it takes you a while to kind of get you know, the basics right, and then you start to realize you can sort of broaden back to what you're doing. As long as your original theme is right, then uh, I don't think how, how you do what you do and the way that kind of manifests itself in different kinds of products and technologies is almost somewhat independent of kind of that original core goal. Which is still the same today. I mean, empowering creativity is still a thing that we do. I've tweaked it slightly. Now it's kind of empowering creative freedom because I think there's a lot of forces at play to kind of limit people's freedom, even in product design. You know, sometimes you can you know, the guys will put a limit in the features and you say, look, you've got to let this back this off a bit. Let people make the product go wrong a bit. Like let the colour corrector go this you know too far or let the setting on the camera go too far because then people know the limits. Don't don't set the limits based on what your impressions of what someone will do. Give people freedom, let people go too far, and then learn where the boundaries are based on what they're trying to do. Sometimes you'll find people go past a boundary for a reason creatively, and that's exciting too. So that's the thing I think that I really love about it. We're here as a foundation for what people are gonna do and, and to make our customers look good. We're not here to be like you know heroes at the moment. You know, we realize that the people that use our products are actually uh, Fantastically creative and that's what we're here to support. So that original themes always stayed the same.
0: We had uh, an interesting comment from Twitter Wayne Anderson picked up on what you were saying about the the courage to Be a disruptor and the challenges facing somebody who wants to disrupt. Can you can you talk about that?
1: It's funny actually that I mean, it, that's a kind of a good question and I hate the word disruption um, because I think it's a bad Like, What are you actually disrupting? I mean, it's really what you're talking about is creativity seen in a bad way. And what we're really doing is just creating interesting new ways of doing things by thinking intensely about problems that people are having. That's not really disruptive. It's, it's, um, so I've never really liked that term. It, to me, the biggest problem I think that, uh, in fact, the TV industry had, and I didn't realize it was a wider problem that business actually has. People don't really, I mean, you think about it, right? We're, we're, we're humans. We have the ability to, to create a world in our minds. I mean, that's one thing that makes us unique and we can predict the future in our mind and then plan complex, you know, I mean, look at someone who builds a building or a road. I mean, they've had an incredibly uh, detailed plan in their minds of what they're going to create and then they just go off and make it a reality and we're really unique in that way that we can do that. You know, we do different things. Every time we want to create a house, we do a different house. I mean, animals just create the same burrow or whatever they do. So in many ways, you know, we've got the ability to recreate the world in our in our minds and that's not really disruptive unless you're acting like an animal, where you pretty much only care about the the resources. You know, I own the 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 pond or the food source, and I've got to fight other animals for it. And I think that the TV industry, in some ways, that's what we found it, was the case. I mean, when you've got equipment that's that expensive, it's only the top of the hierarchy that you can afford to buy that equipment. You know, me, and my friends couldn't afford to use this gear. So what you get is a situation where it becomes a very almost property-based world in in an, in an industry that's supposed to be creative. I mean. It's actually supposed to be a creative industry. We're supposed to be making entertainment. And so the people that were doing that, the people that were really good at that were somewhat constrained by needing to work for the guy that had the hot gear. You had to basically work for those guys. And so I think that you know, i found that the TV industry really should be the creative people that are driving the change. And so if I could make the equipment more affordable, it actually made the equipment irrelevant in a way. And that sounds bad because I'm supposed to be an equipment manufacturer, but by essentially making it more affordable. And, and also also what combined with that is easy to use, obviously, because if it's too complicated, then you have to have a giant crew. You know, we were talking about this before we went on air, how the fact that you can have quite a tight crew these days and, and do really complicated live productions from all around the world. Um, <coughs> it's a double-sided coin. You can't just make something affordable. It's also got to be, you yeah, know, much, much, uh, you've you got to finish the product at a higher level. It's got to be much more complete. It, it can't be, you know, um, too clunky. But so really that was the core of what we were trying to do. We we're trying to essentially I see the creative world as more of a network of people that are interacting. And the more connections people have between each other, the more things that don't exist can come into existence. And that's really what our job is, right? Our job is to be good at making things that don't exist. It's really easy to look at things that do exist and then you know that's where the disruption term comes. It's like, oh well, I'm doing this and now this is disrupting things. It's like, well, you know, generally what I'm trying to do is make the industry bigger. I'm trying to add new things that don't exist onto the economy and plug them in and make a bigger world. I mean, I grew up in, in essentially almost poverty, um, government housing in a country town, and you know it was a very hierarchical world. I mean, the Industrial Revolution, it wasn't a country thing, it was a city thing, it was an urban thing. So you know, I've been able to sort of recreate myself and, 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 and yeah, become more wealthy as an individual because of all this creativity. And I think what's interesting is the business world itself has a, has a problem with the same thing you know so as i'm finding as we're interacting with the business world i'm horrified at business culture and really how asset based it is even the accounting standards don't you know they can't cover the value of intellectual property because they can't value something properly unless you trade it and you can't tell how much you know like a an hour of coding time from an engineer it could be in one product that fails or it could be in you know 500 products over a 10 year period and return you know half a billion dollars i mean how can you value ip it becomes quite difficult to do so I think the, the business world had the same problem that the uh, the TV industry had and, um, and it's not really, I don't see it as disruption, I see it as actually the natural state of humans. I mean, people are naturally creative and I think business culture can crush that out of people and turn people into machines. And so I think the problem is that the word disruption has got a much deeper meaning to it. When you use that term, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a sort of a bad term in some ways because you're actually you know almost dehumanizing something that's actually supposed to be natural for people? I guess that's a slightly rambling answer, but it's a good question. And I've been asked about it a couple of times, and I just realized when I first heard the term disruption that I just didn't like the term. It it just doesn't, it's not really celebrating what's great about being a person, being human, and working with other smart people that when you, when you get together and do something fantastic, you know, that doesn't exist.
0: Well, I guess from the point of view of, say, your competitors who previously were making equipment that was so expensive and out of the reach of most people that what you did disrupted their business and their ability to make a profit. So I guess from your standpoint, it's about the expression of creativity in different ways. From their standpoint, it's like, who the hell is he?
1: I think that's a really valid point from their point of view, but I think that if they were really listening to their customers, they would have heard the same things we were hearing. I mean, we were the customers, right? And I was asking manufacturers that. I mean, I asked multiple manufacturers before we even did a camera, if someone could produce a wider dynamic range, low, lower cost camera, because we wanted to try and get more colorists. I mean, when we first acquired DaVinci, I mean, color correction was a very niche industry. It wasn't, you know, many people were using it. And when, yeah, so we bought out a lower cost version, and then we actually decided to really try and get more people doing color correction. We made a free version. We actually essentially made the product free. And there's a reason for that. And there's a, essentially a business model for that, which is opposing the sort of cloud model. But the whole point was that, was that um, we, we thought, look, we've got to, like, you know, you, you got to change things. I mean, we didn't really, I mean, we did this because we just sort of pursued the problems that the customers were having. And I don't think that anyone else wouldn't have heard the same things. You know, I think that they would have, like, I guess everyone would have heard the same things. Why didn't they do anything about it? You know, like they're in a powerful position to be able to do something about it and they did nothing. So I think that is one of the things that, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's a strange, it's hard for me in some ways to talk about other companies because I often just scratch my head and I don't know really how they work. But then you see the way the business world works and you kind of get a feeling of kind of what's probably going on. They might be constrained or trapped in the fact that they're they're locked into some revenue or, like we get people talking about strange things like, Inventory turns, like how many inventory turns you got? And it's like, well, does it matter? I mean, what? how do you define uh, inventory levels by inventory turns? I mean, really, you probably want an inventory level that is enough inventory to maintain supply of product to your customers on demand as they want them, but not so much that you've got any extra components more than what you need for that task. So really, that would be how you define what your inventory level should be. Uh, but inventory turns is like a strange metric that like we've got you know, components these days have got over a year lead time. That's because some someone in the manufacturer of those components is thinking about inventory turns instead of thinking about how to actually get us components quicker. And that's really kind of what brought communism down, right? You had food queues in stores because people were waiting for food, but I'm sure their supply chain was incredibly efficient, all centrally managed, all well set up, very efficient. But then, of course, its efficiency can be the absolute enemy of customer experience. So you know. Yeah, I know it's it's a, it's a, a yeah, you know, these are good questions. They're very complex answers in some ways, but I think I try to just I always try to come down on the side of what's best for the customer because that's who I used to be. And you know at three in the morning when something's going wrong, what are you, you know, what's the customer going to do about it? And I think that's just what drives me. So I don't tend to think about like I don't look at other companies' websites, I don't go through their trader booths, I'm just not that interested in other companies in the industry, I'm always just trying to just focus on our customer and make our customers happy. Like our joke is that we're trying to blow our customers' minds, and that's hard to do because you've got to keep getting better at what you do, otherwise you won't impress them, right? They get used to the, you know, the, the things you have, and you've got to try and find something else to do that's going to be exciting, and that's where I drive all my energy. And that's the fun bit too. When you're a kid, did you really care about a 2% market share battle with Coke versus Pepsi? Nobody did. You thought about cool things you wanted to make, so I think that to me it's really, I think, healthy in a mental way. To just not even care about who you compete with, and just focus on what you want to do. Because I reckon when you're old and you're sitting in that rocking chair, if you're lucky to get old and sit in a rocking chair, you're going to look back and think about all the cool things you made and the amazing adventures you had with all the cool people that you did you know that you got a chance to work with. And I don't think one or two percent market share battles are going to be really that exciting to sort of reminisce about.
0: Well, one of the things I think that is exciting to think about is the fact that doing what we are doing now, a live stream. You're in Australia. It's 3 in the morning. I'm in Boston. A little more reasonable time of day. But we're doing a live stream at professional video quality levels that not too long ago that we couldn't do this. And so maybe give us uh, just a context of that. Uh, Again, I know you don't like the term disruption, but it's Totally, from my point of view, it's total disruption of how video is produced.
1: At a very high level, I think well, I'm really quite privileged. To the fact that I was an engineer in post production, I think that it meant that I kind of had the right context to start a company. I think when you, a lot of people start a company because they want to be rich and powerful and it's prestigious, you know. And I think that sets you down a path of kind of a hierarchical way of looking at things. So really, everyone's below you, and you're trying to shove as many people in below you as possible to make you feel good, and, and it, I reckon it's the long, wrong context. I think a better way to start a business is to go, oh, here's a problem, and maybe I can solve it. And so I think in, in post-production, that's really what you spend all your time doing as an engineer, so I think I was just lucky that, that I happened to be an engineer working in post-production, and it turned out that that was the right attitude to have, because I really still do the same thing. I'm just, you know, I, I go to trade shows, and I, I talk to people, and you chat about things, and you see a lot of the same people year after year, and get a chance to have a conversation about and after the time, apologising for the fact you haven't got a chance to do the thing that you talked about last year, so all of these kind of great conversations you have, and and then you kind of just get busy fixing things. So you kind of feel like you're still the engineer in, in television, uh, still helping the guys in the edit suites, and and you know and on stage and in you know and performing look good. I mean, my job is to make other people look good, and I reckon I'm lucky that I've always done that, and I'm still doing it. And I think that's the right attitude to have. I think that from that is all the Product invention and things like that. I mean, obviously, the way we run the business is quite different. It's a very different uh, way of doing it. Uh, but I think that I think you just got to get your own brain in the right spot. And I don't think if you're really doing a business well, your everyone is your boss, right? So you're not really in any way others people's boss. I mean, you you do have to sort out when things just go wrong, and you've got to try and be the guy that can kind of add clarity to things and the bigger picture view to things, but. Really, when you're doing the job right, everyone is your boss, and you have to run around and keep up with everyone. So, and also, you want to be the dumbest guy in the company too, right? So everyone else is like smarter than you. So then you've got a fantastic group of people around you. Um, so I think that all this the stuff that we do is really just—it's um, just the fact that we're naturally just trying to help. We're just trying to. You know, I just keep thinking of people. You know, people in the TV industry work incredibly hard. I don't think people quite realise. I think television's glamorous. It's—it's. It's, yeah, look, it kind of looks glamorous on the outside, but it's not. It's hard work, and it and it's fun. And I think the people in it love it. It's just there's something about like we were talking about color chip charts. Now, just they look nice. I don't know what it is. You know, like I was joking about the one of my favorite pictures of the moon landings was the shot where the color chip chart was in the shot. Now it's not supposed to be. That's not supposed to be a great photo, right? It's supposed to be used to calibrate the camera. But I'm like, oh, look at the color chip chart. Like there's just something about them looks nice. Um, I think people in the TV industry love that industry, but every industry's probably got people that really love it. It could be jewelry, or it could be coffee, you know, like whatever it might be. And I think that um, if you're doing it well, it's because you just love it and you want to bring the thing you love to people. And so you just want everyone to know how wonderful it is. And you know, it's a complex economy with lots of different industries, and you know, you, you know, you can't uh, nothing really fits everything. So I think all the products we do just come from the fact that we just love it, and uh, you know, we want to make everyone. Our customers do. Our customers aren't business people, right? They're creative. We have to find ways of helping them make money and be successful financially, so they can actually do it as a job. And so, yeah, it's all caught up in that. It's all a very broad philosophy, but and then of course a lot of technology and chips and circuit boards and you know code. So um, it's it's a complex thing, but that's what makes it fun. It's. I mean, I remember when I was a kid and I went and I was a teenager and I went to the local TV station and did a work experience program where you spent a week at the TV station just, you know, pretty much just cleaning up and helping out. But one of the engineers was showing me around and he showed me some of the, it was actually vertical test signals, funny enough, which is really obscure, out of date technology. But I remember looking at that and thinking, wow, this industry's never gonna get boring. And it still today isn't. And here we are doing a live stream, you know, in the morning, but it's just not a boring industry. And I think if you love an industry, I think you'll find that it's never boring because it's just, there's something about it that just gels with you and it becomes, Part of spiritually part of who you are, and that just means that we're out there making as many products as we can to help people in any way we can.
0: We have a question from Twitter from Wayne Anderson, and it's keeping on this theme of staying connected to customers. And He said, uh, inventory isn't the critical focus, but cloud devices and edge computing are changing what customers need and how production happens. And so the question is, in this changing environment, how do you stay connected to your customers when it's all swirling around? I mean,
1: you've got all this metrics and, and data, and I think that that basically turns people into numbers, and, and it's inhuman. You know, it's, it's dehumanizing. My feeling is just have conversations. I mean, just hang out with your customers and, and have conversations with them. You know, like, I just don't—I th- think people shove technology in the way of things too much, and— just have a great conversation. I mean, I was you know, in uh, um, San Jose a couple of weeks ago um, and we were walking along the street and we caught up with some customers and like, hey, do you wanna come out for dinner? I'm like, yeah, cool. And we went out and just had dinner. And you know, just like, just catch up with your customers and hang out with them and chat. And you can reinvent the world just by having conversations face-to-face. And you know, like you take the customer's spirits with like, you know, all those conversations you have. Like we love launching products in the US because I think the great thing about U.S. customers is they just do kind of almost a brain dump of who they are and what they're doing, and and you take those conversations with you, and they're in your mind the whole time. So every decision you make, you're constantly thinking, will that go down well? And I think just having the spirit of your customers with you, and it helps that we were a customer, of course, because you've got the sort of foundation right, but you just want to sort of find a way of capturing the customer. And it's not a technology that's going to do it. And it's not even often the technology that, you know, these technologies become fads, but if you just look at the workflows and realize what are people doing? Like cloud computing, right? I mean, you know, it's just a fancy way of renting software and turning software business into a property business. And, you know, software's supposed to be a really creative business. And so you kind of penalize your customers because the more a customer uses you, the, you know, if you think about it, right? if you're using a piece of software, you're generally using that software to create something that things you're creating are your intellectual property. Now, if you, if you can't pay that company every month and the software shuts down, you Now, lose access to all the creative work you've created. Your entire IP, your personal intellectual property base, is now inaccessible because you've failed to stump up the money every month. And then, and, and and they but the cloud can you know, the kind of cloud software thing. Well, you know, the cloud computing is really just a fancy way of saying SQL servers, really, right? But but the you know, and, and off site processing, but the the cloud licensing for software, I think, is um, it's just really bad, particularly in this industry because it's a creative industry. And, your entire life's work can be now tied up in a bit of software that deactivates or well, the manufacturer decides to stop supporting that that version and then you've got a you know like you know everyone's got an old computer somewhere that's got old files on it that they can access with an old piece of software and you've kind of like I'm worried about the archive of of the creative work that's being done in this industry because you might find in 20 years time it's completely inaccessible because the software the you know the cloud-based software is all shut down so i always worry a lot about these sort of fad technologies and it's like you know, because we're DaVinci and we're high-end, we often have to do everything, right? You've got to do VR, you've got to do 3D, you've got to do all these technologies, you just have to, you've got no choice. Your customer's doing it, you've got to do it. Whether you really think it's gonna be a set the world on fire or whether you think it's gonna be a bit of a niche technology, we really just have to do them all. We've got no choice, but I do think that people obsess too much about technologies and really you kind of look at the broader picture and go, what are people actually trying to do? What are their actual problems? And make sure you just have lots of conversations and capture people's spirits and carry them around with you and, and Make sure every decision you make is, in, is compatible with that customer-centric point of view because you can't take your customers for granted. You know you, you, They're the ones that have given you everything. They've given you life. So you've got to make sure that, that all your success will be built on doing better things for those customers. And I think there's too many people now that try to manage customers or manipulate them into positions that are not probably in their best interests. And I just don't think that's going to hold up, Mel, in the modern world. People kind of are wiser. You know, they know that These things aren't quite right. They'll go along with it for a while, and then sort of realise it's not great. So I think that you know, I don't know. It's a bit of a philosophy thing, and probably not probably the quite the right way to answer that question. But I just have some strong feelings about really how people make decisions and and uh, and where technologies really fit in the bigger picture.
0: How do you decide, given what you were saying, carrying the spirit of the customer and really trying to understand and get into their heads? How do you decide where to invest in products and features? What to do? What not to do? Those are hard, hard yeah, choices. That's true,
1: and I, and I, you know, I think, and we're not going to get it right. I mean, we're human, right? And I think that's you've got to have a company that that's okay. Like it's okay to actually get something wrong. I mean, we're kind of in, in many ways, what we're actually really doing here is it, it's a knowledge competition. We're trying to know more than than what we. Did we're trying to push ourselves, and it's a competition not with others but with ourselves. So, really, what do we not know? Well, let's push ourselves to find out where's those boundaries. And I mean, often you get people inside going, Oh, this went wrong or that went wrong. It's like, Yeah, but like, we didn't know that that was going to happen. Like, or you know, like, this is normal, that's like actually normal. It's, I'd be really worried if nothing was going wrong or we weren't finding a system breaking because we were trying to do this. And I mean, I've you know, like I was saying, I was up uh, twice this week until three in the morning. I was rewriting some software that it orders components because you know the, some products that we're doing uh, got different profiles than we sort of the software was originally written for, and the software's got quite old and it's complex. So you know you just rip into the problem and and, and solve it and learn things. And so you know, but to, to get onto that point about specifics to do with you know what actual products we do or what we invest in, I, again it really kind of comes back to the kind of customers. What are they? You know, what are they really struggling with? Like you look at the original pocket camera we did, and that that did certain things, but we wanted to do a better one, but we just, it took a few years to kind of get our, to get our knowledge levels right. I mean, we wanted to, we didn't want to make it out of metal. The new Pocket Cinema Camera 4K uses a kind of carbon fiber, polycarbonate um, material. And we wanted to kind of, you know we, we needed basically to be better at what we're doing, to, to really kind of reinvent that product line, to get it better. And so like there's products I've had to wait 10 years to be able to do, because you think, oh, it'd be really good if you could do this. And sometimes you sort of wonder whether someone else will do it, or, and then you realize one day it's actually you doing it. But I think if you're just constantly thinking in terms of like how to be smarter and what things don't you know and trying to hunt down those things, I think that, and then you kind of focus on the on the problems the customers are having. Now we would never have done cameras if we hadn't have really bought DaVinci Resolve, but we needed cameras that had a wide dynamic range because you know with a video camera, the black is all kind of there and the white part of the image is all there, and you can't. There's nothing really above the white. There's nothing really below the black. So if you want to make the image look more like a feature film. You really can't do it, there's nothing there. So we needed something with a wide dynamic range, which means it had sort of detail below the black level and detail above the white level, so you could kind of pull it around and manipulate it and make it basically look like a feature film. And, you know, that uh, that's really the thing that kind of got us going in cameras. And our early cameras were really pretty much just that. And and as they've evolved, we've been able add more kind of, you know, conventional camera features. And now we've got a whole lot of really high-end um, digital film camera features in a you know, really affordable kind of product. And it, it's sort of a it's it's an, it's sort of like a it's an it's a, like an adventure really it's almost like going on a a sort of a long walk and just learning things along the way or tunneling you know maybe it's like a a mine and you're constantly chipping away at the coal face looking for the next you know lump of you know uh value there and the things you know that's behind the the coal face is the next you don't know what's there what's what's behind it. you could strike gold you know like what is there so I think that's kind of the way I treat it. I don't try to do really long-term plans, but I do have long-term things, views of things we don't know or we're not good at that we need to get better at. It's very broad in some ways, and then suddenly you realize one day, oh God, we could actually do this, and it all suddenly comes together and condenses into a product pretty quickly. Um, but I think also you know, we have our own manufacturing, so we don't have a huge crisis if a product doesn't sell. You know, we can try things because of that, and if it sells, it sells. If it doesn't, it doesn't. If it doesn't sell very well, we don't make many. Um, So it gives us an ability to kind of like, you know, and then we learn from that. Why Our original uh, studio cameras, for example, we did a studio camera, and the high-end guys knew exactly what it was. They wanted a different lens mount, but they knew exactly what it was. But the low-end guys that we did it for didn't know what talkback, tally and and camera control and all these things were. They just didn't know what they were. So it took a long time for those customers to, to learn that. So we changed the marketing a bit, we took out some stuff that the camera didn't need got it down in price a bit, and then now that, that camera sells okay. Um, so it was originally, you could say it was almost a failure, but then it got better over time, and now over the lifespan of the product, it's done well. So I think that everything's an adventure, and you can't, I think you, can, you shouldn't get too stressed about any specific thing, because ultimately, really what you're gonna do is learn from it all, and I think then people feel more comfortable to actually take creative risks with products, which you want. You want people to invent things or come up with things that don't exist, but you don't take any business risks. And on the business side of things, we're extremely conservative. Like we've got no investment to start the company. We've got a little bit of an overdraft, but for years we didn't even have that. We just don't have debt. You know, we um, the original shareholders still own all the company. So, you know, we really keep it extremely conservative on the business side, so that we can actually be a bit more adventurous on the product side. So, it, it's it's quite a large, overriding kind of uh, thing to kind of you know, it, it's not so it's not just the product. It's actually it's a much broader. You know, kind of a thing you've got to deal with. It's an ecosystem, essentially, um, that you're dealing with and that sort of lets you do the things you do. Sorry, it's not a great answer, I suppose, because it's probably was probably a sharper answer about specifics, but it is quite a complicated, broad kind of uh, problem when you're making decisions on what products you're going to do. Sometimes it's just driven by the guys in, in-house who just want to do certain things or take products in certain directions, and you've really just got to let them do that and, and support them on it. Um, it's just, there's so many different angles that define how our, how our product evolves
0: on the subject of the broader ecosystem so you were just saying that it's not just about the product but it's about the ecosystem which i'm assuming means your customers your partners and your employees and so arsalan khan is asking do you think that there is a link between customer experience and employee experience and how they affect one another
1: you know, when you think about it, the company itself has got a lot of specialists in it that that are you know like you've got engineers, hardware and software engineers who really have never worked in television before. And uh, but you've also got product managers like you know if you look at our production switches, the product manager is a guy who's a, a live production switcher guy. Like he I just haven't used the right job title, but but you know he does live switching. Um, and so you know you you really got to have a balance of like you know and there's a respect there because you've got I mean, he'll have respect for the engineering guys because they're gifted when it comes to software, hardware engineering, industrial design. I mean, you've got thermal guys, you've got all kinds of people—you know, EMC specialists for testing, with compliance, with standard—all these kind of people involved. And you know, he's in awe of all these guys, but at the same time, they're in awe of him because he switched the Olympics and things like that. So I think if you, if you're trying to do great things, then I think you can. Everyone respects each other. Like if you've got a software engineer and a, and a user interface designer and you're trying to do new things, they both respect each other because the user interface designer looks at the software engineer and goes, wow, you've actually made my, my menu work. And the software engineer goes, wow, that menu looks really cool now that I've got it working and look, look how nice it looks. And they, they both kind of have respect for each other. But you've got to kind of be pushing the edge a little bit otherwise they settle in you know. and you don't want that. And I don't think the customers want it either. So what you actually have is, I see um, a, an IP business and a creative business as being a network of people and that network is constantly, the links are changing. In fact, you kind of have super nodes. It's very much like network theory in computing. So you kind of have super nodes with more connections. And in fact, sometimes the more connections you have, the more knowledgeable you can be because you you get more flows of knowledge and information coming through, but you've got to be careful not to overload yourself. But that's, those links include customers. I mean, when you go to a trade show, all these links are being created to customers and we're all uh, connecting and talking backwards and forwards. So really that's where the hierarchy is so hostile to innovation because you know, people are below you or above you, and it's just not the wrong way to think. I think of it as just the fact that we've got all these kinds of links between people, and and some of the, a lot of those people are outside the company, they're inside the company, and so you just become a giant group of people who are just trying to make the industry better, because there's you know there's mutually benefit. I mean, we'll do well economically, we'll make money, and that money can be used to build other products, and and to be you know have more capability. The customers get a chance to to grow businesses and support themselves in the industry that they love. So it becomes a very mutually beneficial thing, but you just got to stop people, um, you kind of got to stop the psychopath coming in and trying to turn it into a hierarchy. And I think that that's always a danger. So really in many ways, it's just the fact that we're all just linked to each other. And I, I do think that you know the, we have customers in-house. I was a customer, all the product managers were, were customers. Um, so we really have in-house customers, but that's why we spend all the money on the trade. We don't go to trade shows to sell products. You can look at that online. You don't need to find out about our latest camera or DaVinci update at a trade show, what you're really doing, you're going to trade shows to have conversations with people. And that's why we do the trade shows, They to have these conversations, to get, it's what we take away from a trade show is more valuable than, than what, in some ways, the customers do. But but people do want to ask you questions and come along and have a conversation. But but we get a lot out of, those, out of those shows. You've got to get in front of people. You've just got to get out there, get in front of people, and have great conversations. And you know metrics don't do it. And, and really maintain and con- make connections to people that, That you're trying to solve problems for, and that's really how that's you know again it's a bit of a broad answer I suppose, but that's kind of how I see it is is how it all works.
0: We have another question from Twitter that I think is related to this, and that is, how do you measure the value? What is the value that you're supplying to your customers? And that leads into the whole subject of metrics, because you're 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 talking in in very soft. Terms about innovation, inspiration, creativity, but how do you measure that as a business person? You're running a company.
1: I think um, ultimately, probably the way we all do, which is um, essentially sales. I mean, you do look at the sales numbers and go, "This is selling well," and so that means you're probably delivering some good value. You you get a chance to talk to customers and you can see the reaction. I mean, if we launch a product at a trade show, you can get the reaction and get a real quick vibe on how the the product's being perceived by people. Um, I think that really is the very core of what you're trying to do. You are always trying to think about value. Um, and that's why, you know, that question before about low cost, it wasn't really the goal. What really in some ways you really are focused on is creating value for people. And what is that value? Well, can I build something that people can actually make a lot of money off? I mean, the things I in some ways the most value that, um, that I you know, cherish, products that I've bought in the past that I've had, you know, is, you know when you have a product and you have use the hell out of it, And and by the time you're getting ready to replace it, it's so worn out, and it's just. But you look it back and you go, "Wow, I've really done a lot of stuff with that product." And I think that, to me, is a great perception of value. That's what you'd hope your products do for people. You know, that they just work and they work and they work. And a few years later, you get the new one because you want the new feature or some. It's got a nicer industrial design, but you really work that product to death. You know, that to me is great value. And, And the great thing for us is that our customers really essentially are making money from video, right? So. We can often see that we've got to make their business succeed. So it's a great way of looking at that and going, well, the value of this product is really how much they can make from it as far as income. So I'm actually thinking about my customers' businesses more than I am just about what the product features are. A consumer product I think is much harder because you've got to now have perceived value because the consumer's not trying to make money from it. They're just using it to enjoy it or just having it. Whereas I think one of the great things for us that makes it easier for us is that is this product going to make money for our customers and will they be able to make a living off it? And if it's got all the features they need, then it is. It's, it's going to do that task. And so you tend to think, like, an, you know, we had a, a live production switcher and we put, uh, you know, like a failover audio mixer in it and it had compressor, limiter, six band parametric EQ, and all these kind of audio features. And because you know, by building it in, you don't have to worry about having a separate audio mixer being carted around because it's built into the switcher. And you know that people need to do treatment to their audio. So it's something that, Will help them out. It'll give a higher professional production values. You know, color correction in the cameras, so you can actually remote control the color in the cameras. All these things you're thinking about. If I could solve that problem, their production values will go up. The the work they do will look better. They'll they'll be perceived as you know their own work will be perceived with more value. So you really are somewhat a value chain, and your job is to make other people create value in the work they do as well. And so, like making DaVinci free, and people can download it, and, and Now, and you can edit and everything, of course, but the color correction side of it, you know, you can now get sort of a digital, you know, feature film quality with something you can shoot, you know, $1,300, right? You can shoot on that and color correct that. If you're talented enough, you can color correct it and actually make a feature film quality result. That's highly valuable for that customer to do that. And so, if they offer that service to their uh, corporate client, for example, they could bring feature film quality to a corporate video, which is going to add a huge amount of value for them individually. And I think that's, so it's really easy for us to define value in the product because we can actually see what effect and impact it has on our customers creating value for their customers. So that's one great thing about building essentially products that people use in for their businesses is you can really quick. I think it's quite easy to identify what the value in your products is because your customers are creating value for themselves, for their clients. And I think that's how it's, that you don't need to use metrics for that in that regard because you can just
0: see it. It's pretty interesting you define, uh... The value and the features in terms of your customer's business model, actually, from what you were saying. Yes, exactly. Because, I mean, really, that's what they're trying to do. I mean,
1: customers are creative, right? So, like, look at the DaVinci business model for us. It's free and you can edit, color correct to post-production, all that stuff. You can download it for free right now. We do have a paid version, which has got some licenses in it and collaboration and a bunch of kind of high-tech features for, you know, lens uh, you know, corrections and really hot, complex stuff that Hollywood use. But the point is most people come at television from a, just an interest, a general interest point of view, from a creativity point of view. But really, I know well, if they could make a living from it. If you, Say you're 17 or 15 and you're kind of interested in television. Well, you're just sort of interested in it. You're interested in creatively. You might want to tinker with some tools and find out what you can kind of do and, and learn. So you can download DaVinci for free and do that. Now, bizarre enough, if you get good at it and you start to work out that you can do color correction, you can do these tasks, you might get a few people ask, oh, can you do my wedding? Can you do this? Can you do that? Before you know it, you're actually making money. And so the point is, I don't think anyone in the TV industry really thinks of themselves as a business person. They think of themselves as creative, but the business will actually help them uh, fund the, you know, the, the lifestyle on television. In fact, that's something I think that millennials are always getting bagged out. Older generations love complaining. I mean, it is one of the great things about getting old, you can just complain about everything, but they love complaining about younger generations. But I think one thing I've really found that the millennials will do very, very well is they've somehow reconciled this like a larger kind of, you know, like the TV industry came along in the 60s and the baby boomers went a bit nuts, but that was a big intellectual property-based industry, music and, and television, that was added on to the economies and it became a large IP almost part of the economy. Now, As I said to someone recently, you know, to land on the moon, you also have to have Jerry Springer, right? You've got to have, there's the good and the bad of intellectual property-based you know uh, parts of the economy. Um, but I think that what you've seen now with all the social media and the online streaming, and, and you know your your um, show is that that's also a large addition to the economy, and it's an IP part, it's an intellectual property industry plugged into the economy. And so I think millennials are quite good at reconciling the creativity and the need to make money to fund it, so I can actually do this for a living. And I think that that you know I think uh, Gen X, a lot of my generation, tended to sort of put back, we extended our adolescence a bit and put back having kids and things like that, I think the younger generation are really good at reconciling both at the same time, which is actually what you want to do. You want to be able to do your creative thing, the thing you love doing and enjoy, but find a way of making some money from it so you can actually sustain it as a life. This is the thing you can actually do. So I think that's the trick, and so if you look at it, back at DaVinci, hopefully the customers make money and they essentially realize that they're a business and they realize that they're actually making some money, then they can come along and buy a control panel from us for color correction or you know, uh, maybe a camera or something else, and at that point we get paid. So really our goal, our, de- our, our design goal for DaVinci is to find ways of actually getting people to find a way of making money because they're going to be able to download it for free, learn, tinker, try out things, and then hopefully they've got to find a, we've got to find a way for them to actually earn some money from that, and then they can buy things from us and that's where we get, it, you get a return. They make, it's a more healthy business model for us because it forces us to find ways of making people successful. Now we're doing that already in the Hollywood side where you know most of the feature films use use you know, DaVinci so we're already doing that to the height and the post production industry worldwide use it but what about new people that are coming in as well and also these large facilities need raw talent too they need new people because they're growing and expanding the market's much bigger than it used to be so then it becomes a win-win so you know, you can see that every every product we do we're trying to find ways of how do how do we help make people successful and then hopefully they'll give us success back but we can't just demand from people continuously or from the moment that we meet them. We've got to do something for them to help them get going so that we can add new people to the industry. I've never tried to do Coke versus Pepsi and steal business from other people. What I've tried to do is do new things that didn't exist and add them onto the TV industry itself and make the industry itself bigger. You know, And so that's generally, because then you're not really fighting with people. I don't really want to fight, I want to create stuff. So what you really want to do is, um, is just find out little things you're not good at, make new things and make an industry bigger. And that's what our customers are trying to do as well. So ultimately, the whole thing just gets a lot bigger and there's a lot more business for everyone.
0: Well, I can tell you when it comes to DaVinci, that software, it's so, I I mean, I think it's so great. Uh, Certainly helps us make, make better videos. You know, we're out of time, but just very quickly before we go, can you tell us where is, very briefly, where is Blackmagic Design going? and if you want to share just again very briefly because we're, we're pretty much past time here where uh, video production in, is going and if and if you want to give us a sneak peek just just between the two of us not that there's anybody else listening uh, <laughs> of your upcoming products and features you can do that too
1: <laughs> well it's always hard doing that you know like we've uh, as we you know like because we sometimes you, you do get those questions but look we've sometimes made mistakes and announced things before we've been really probably ready to do that because you do get that constant conflict like well where are you heading with things you know, I need a heads up because i'm planning you know it's a business i'm planning things so you try to kind of sometimes announce things but then you realize one chip goes wrong or some thing doesn't fit and it's delayed six months and then everyone's super angry so you kind of all i shouldn't have done that we've literally even had products on a booth that I have to put pulled off a booth because the very last minute we realized that some television didn't work properly or you know with the product or whatever you know so it it's quite unpredictable i think that's the thing that shocked me i think from an TV industry point of view, I haven't realised kind of like on the equipment side of things how somewhat chaotic it is, and from the point of view that um, you know really how uh, complex it is to get a product to market, and how unpredictable it is that some products that we didn't think would take very long took a lot longer, and then products that we thought would be really complex were quite quick. So it's always quite hard to actually talk about stuff that hasn't been announced yet because you don't quite know really what's going to land, and and so that's always a difficult thing. But but I think just in general, I think that, you know, there's an overriding thing. That, you know, I see the company, it's a future direction. I mean, obviously, we've got to interact with the business world more and find ways of really trying to, like we've hidden from the business world, really, in, in many ways, and we can't do that forever. So really trying to find a way of, um, if, you know, but the business world just seems so, oh, God, I, I, I wouldn't say superficial is really the wrong word. I mean, you've got, I've seen business people who will not look at anything beyond the accounts of a company and they think they can look at the accounts and understand everything about a business. I mean, IP businesses are generating IP. They're spending a lot of their income actually building an IP base with, you know, of, of linked of intellectual property, which then is used to create products. So I think what's interesting is um, really, I think that's the area we're mostly focused on is how to interact with that world and so that world doesn't destroy us because the TV industry is notorious for companies that have got caught up in the business world and then been just decelerated in a big way from that experience. So I think that's a big area to work on. Obviously there's tons of various technologies and things we've just introduced, 8K and some things like that. So we're having a lot of fun with that and um, the reception from those products has been really, really good. Uh, So really in some ways it's kind of, you know you get longer term things, which is sort of more broad of like, which things don't we know? What things do we have to be better at? But then you've got much more shorter term things, which is specific products that come from some longer term intellectual property based work. So there's really kind of three streams in a way. There's the general things we've got to tackle we don't know, there's various technologies that we're working on that will then be u- able to be used in various other products, which are there's sort of more short-term, the actual products themselves. Because once you've got the IP, you can then create things that you couldn't do before. So, I don't know, it's, it's sort of a, I don't know, it's a bit of a non-answer, you know, sorry for the, there's a bit of all over the place, but it's a bit like that, you know, it's a product development's kind of like that. You're kind of drifting all over the place and then things sharpen up suddenly and become a product. It's like they condense essentially into a product. But, you know, and and sometimes you don't really know. Like one minute you'll say, no, no, we can never do that. Two weeks later you're like, oh my God, actually, hang on a second, that wasn't, like we can. Like sometimes we surprise ourselves with what we're even able to do. So like, you know, I've always thought that a healthy culture would be that anyone could come along and say, hey, I was thinking about this, what do you think? And then suddenly the whole company changes direction because it's such a good idea and, and it doesn't matter who it is. And that's a healthy, you know, kind of a healthy way to be. So it can create changes in direction. You've got no idea what's gonna happen. You can come into work and by the end of the day you go home and think, well, that was an interesting day, and everything's different now. You know, and I think that's an exciting company because you don't know what's going to happen in the future, because you can pursue things that opportunities that come up.
0: Fair enough. So we we are definitely pastime out of time, but I just have to tell you, so Mark Cantor, who was the founder of Macromind and Macromedia Director, and whose Wikipedia page says that he has been called the godfather of Multimedia asks the question, uh, are you aware of John Husband and the notion of hierarchy? I guess he was listening to their hierarchy discussion earlier.
1: No, I haven't. Uh, I, I think I've heard the term, but I don't know really what it is. But um, I, I think we come up with, we try to come up with a model, I think, that like you can throw everything that's happening in the world at your model and you think this sort of works. Like a good example is left versus right politics. I mean, everyone's at each other. But, you know, like, and in, in particularly outside of the US, you get a lot of people going, oh my God, the US is, you know, it's like, yeah, but that's a democracy. Democracies are noisy. Democracies aren't supposed to be neat. They're supposed to be noisy. People are actually debating stuff, right? And they're discussing things and they don't like each other's answers. But really, I see left and right of politics, the answers, they, they're both unfortunately right, but they don't actually have the answers individually. They actually perfectly plug together. If they could come together and actually orient themselves right and come together, they would actually have the answers. And bizarrely enough, the answer is left and right tend to fight over property. They're fighting over the, what exists. The answer is to create things that don't. And I think that's the great thing about the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution wasn't about draconian factories and stuff. I mean, that was the old world money creating those factories. But what you really, what I saw was the Industrial Revolution was about design. Now you, you know, the craftsman didn't make the product and design it. Someone else manufactured it. Well, and that meant that you actually now had a design industry that just cared about product design And the machines would build it. So that was a fascinating change. And I think what it meant is that for the first time, you could create products and and elevate yourself out of poverty without taking someone else's land. I mean, I didn't have to raise an army and fight the local landlord to get wealthier. And now I grew up in poverty. So I've been able to create products and actually move up and, and improve my life. And to me, that's a fantastic thing. It's only been around for a couple hundred years. I mean, this is not a new thing and it's quite you have to be quite mature to be able to do that. So I think to me the, the creativity is actually the answer. If we've got to all focus on creating new things that don't exist to grow an economy to make the economy bigger, otherwise all we have is inflation tricks. We can just devalue money and things like that and, and, and just increase the debt pool to try and make it look like we're growing. That's the problem with GDP growth. I mean, that's, it's, a, it's a symptom metric. We probably should be focused on creative output. What's the gross creative production of an economy? then you would find the things that would actually cause growth. Whereas at the moment they're focused on the result and you can get growth anyway if you just want to measure how big things are because you can just increase the debt pool or just deflate the money. So I think that to me the the creativity model seems to work because it doesn't involve people stealing things from each other or fighting each other and we can actually be human versus animals.
0: I love it. Wow, what a great conversation. I wish we had another few hours to continue. Grant Petty, thank you so much. Thank you very much. (laughs) <laughs> all right, Grant Petty, founder and CEO of Black Magic Design. Thanks again for being here. Everybody, thank you for watching. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube and hit the subscribe button at the top of our website, and we'll send you our newsletter with great information about upcoming shows and all kinds of good stuff. Thanks so much, everybody, and I hope you have a great day.